Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I mean, you know what they say. Science is just applied math and math is just applied sex magic. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Eleanor Cummins. I'm Mary Beth Griggs. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each teasing a factoid that we learned either while reporting, editing, reading other great science journalism, answering angry emails, you know, just being a journalist. And we decide which one we absolutely have to learn more about first. And then once we've all spun our little science yarns, we reconvene and try to decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. And as always, if you agree or disagree with us, you should let us know on Twitter at weirdest underscore thing or hashtag weirdest thing pod. So Eleanor, since you're the birthday girl. Oh boy. All right. Um, (laughs) I'll just say about the scariest thing you can say um, to a room full of journalists, contagious writer's block. (sighs) Well, this fact is cursed and I will not have it. Uh, Mary Beth, what about you? Uh, I found the oldest recipe for mac and cheese. Delicious. Mm -hmm. Or at least, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the oldest recipe for mac and cheese is decidedly not delicious. You'll just have to find out. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we will. It's a good tease. All right. Mine is about the intermingled history of science and magic, including sex magic, with a K at the end. Magic. I vote for mac and cheese first. That's my vote. Eleanor wants mac and cheese, too. She is nodding. We're demanding mac and cheese. (laughs) 
I hope you brought you some. know that would have been really good if I had actually brought some but I did not <laughs> unfortunately as I mentioned this is I found the oldest recipe for mac and cheese which was very surprising to me I came across this because I edited a piece by Claire that is a fantastic piece about why we crave things like mac and cheese we mm-hmm. crave carbs and fats together more than carbs or fats alone. Yes, we do. Yes, Mm. we do. And it is so good. Um, But that eventually kind of led me down this very, very interesting rabbit hole um, where I found out that the oldest recipe um, known for mac and cheese comes from a recipe book called The Form of Curie, dating to 1390. Wow. And that's some old mac and cheese. It is very old mac and cheese. (laughs) And I love it because it's it's actually called um, macros, um, Mm. which is a variation on macaroni. And basically, they ask people to make a really thin layer of dough, carve it into pieces, put it in boiling water, and like stir it all around. And then you take it out and you take cheese, you grate it and butter it, and then you put it all together, which is just like mac and cheese today. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, but it was really fascinating. I was wondering like, how this came to be in a Middle English cookbook mm-hmm. that was written on vellum. <laughs> this is like this very elaborate like piece of work. And it was actually created at the end of the 14th century by the master cooks of Richard II. It's an incredibly fascinating document. It contains 196 recipes. And um, I found this segment uh, on the British Library all about, like, what was the purpose of this. And from their website, it says, The author states that the recipes are intended to teach a cook to make everyday dishes, common pottages and common meats for the household, as they should be made craftily and wholesomely as well as unusually spiced and spectacular dishes for banquets. So curious pottages and meats and subtleties for all manner of states, both high and low, <laughs> which is, is really cool. It's the first text, not only to mention macaroni and cheese, but also to mention olive oil, cloves, mace, and gourds, mm. all in relation to British food. And you know, I think it's just such an important reminder that like we think of those things kind of coming into England and to Western Europe with the start of the age of exploration um, uh, that we kind of learned about in school. But that's that's not the case. These things were actually coming in um, to Europe a lot mm-hmm. earlier because of trade routes and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I love a good pottage. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. Um, and then I just started going down the, you know, road of macaroni itself. Uh, <laughs> which just got even more interesting. The title of my autobiography. Yeah, <laughs> macaroni the Road of itself. Macaroni. <laughs> or Macaroni Road. Like, yeah. I think that that would actually... Wow. That'd be a good album. Yeah, it really would. Um, and apparently there's a Greek word, makaria, which referred to a soup that was served at funerals. Uh, but there's another historian that thinks that, no, it probably came from an Italian word, makare, meaning to pound or to crush. Oh, man, this is like my big fat Greek wedding. It is. It is. Yeah, it can all be related back to Greek words. It's from the soup. <laughs> and it's it's wild. And then it started wondering from there, like, not only where did macaroni come from, but where did this pasta come from that it ended up going over to England and Italy? And I know a lot of people have probably heard, right, Marco Polo brought 
pasta to mm-hmm. Italy. Not not entirely true <laughs> because um, macaroni was there when Marco Polo was there, they have written records of like a soldier leaving a bunch of dried pasta called macaroni in his will Hmm. to his benefactors, which (laughs) I love how like deathly the macaroni story already is. (laughs) You really can't escape. I hope to leave behind some macaroni (laughs) for my descendants. I mean, I think it's really, really important. And it's not the oldest, like, pasta that's out there. The right. oldest pasta, definitely China wins that. There is pasta that has been found in pots that is uh, 4,000 years old. So, like, there is very old pasta out there. <laughs> but the dry pasta and the macaroni that we think of today, that probably actually came not from uh, China, where fresh pasta was really popular. Mm-hmm. But it probably came from the Arab world where Mm. um, dry pasta was taken on long journeys. And that's probably what brought it over into Europe and Italy in the first place, which Uh, that's really cool is, is, is just wild. Um, And in Italy, they were making pasta by using their feet in some cases. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm Italian and I have literally never heard this before. I'm horrified. I mean, I think that, you know, after this was like records in the 14th century or so, and it was just they were using their feet to knead the dough and then they would put it in these early kind of screw presses that would actually push it through and and extrude it Mm -hmm. um, and get it ready for being dried. And it's actually that's kind of, you know, Getting back to macaroni and cheese is such an American, like, favorite food, right? Um, But it came over to America, you know, around the time of the revolution and that sort of thing. It's often attributed to Jefferson as being the person who kind of brought it over. He was not the first, but he was really fascinated by these, like, extruders that he was seeing in Italy and these (laughs) true presses, um, which which was really, really fascinating. And it wasn't him. He was really fascinated in the mechanics and that sort of stuff, but it would have been his his wife's uh, half brother, also his slave, James Hemings, um, who would have been his chef de cuisine, who would have actually been making the mac and cheese at Monticello mm. using these machines um, of and course, that sort of thing. Jefferson would like be served some macaroni and be like, but what machine was involved here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's actually, um, there's a list, um, there's a, a thing written, at, kept at Monticello, a document that talks about uh, kind of a description of how Jefferson's macaroni machine works. And so um, from that, the best macaroni in Italy is made with a particular sort of flour called semola in Naples. But at almost every shop, a different sort of flour is commonly used. Um, a paste is made with flour, water, and less yeast than is used for making bread. This paste is then put little at a time, about five or six pounds each time, into a round iron box, the under part of which is perforated with holes through which the paste, when pressed by the screw, comes out and forms the macaroni, which is kind of how it works today. Um, Not much has changed. What has changed is that eventually, as Americans kept eating macaroni, uh, they started coming up with some odd adaptations. There's a cookbook um, called The Virginia Housewife that was written in 1838 by Mary Randolph, where she talks about macaroni. Same kind of dish that was, like, (laughs) used in 1390. It's just like, oh, you boil the macaroni, then you put butter and cheese on it, and you bake it, and it's 
delicious. Um, but right underneath it, she has a recipe for mock macaroni. Because <laughs> <laughs> macaroni is a thing you really have to... I'm skeptical. Mary Randolph says, uh, break some crackers into small pieces, soak them in milk until they are soft, then use them as a substitute for macaroni. (laughs) No. (laughs) Which, which why? (laughs) Why do we need to do this? So it actually sounds kind of like matzo brai, but as someone who is Jewish and Italian, I can say that Jews only eat that during the period of the year when we are forced to by law of God. That was another thing I came across when I was doing this research is going back to like the Arabic, there is actually something in the Talmud that's discussing whether or not pasta is kosher and whether or not it can be like eaten and, and kosher for Passover in mm. particular, um, which which was a really interesting kind of digression um, as well. <laughs> Uh, but the the mac and cheese that we know today in like boxes and that sort of thing, uh, that actually didn't get its start until 1937. Um, it craft mac and cheese debuted during the Depression mm. um, and became very popular then because it was an easy and inexpensive food. Um, and then it became even more popular uh, during World War II because you could get two boxes for one ration ticket. Mm. And so that's kind of what got that prepackaged mac and cheese going in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Do we know where Yankee Doodle Dandy factors in? Because he (laughs) called it macaroni. (laughs) He did call it macaroni. I am so glad you asked. No, this is so thrilling because that's something that you wonder about. And it goes back to, I mean, macaroni was a thing in England, but they associated the weird hats um, and the weird feathers that people would wear in their hats, which was a very popular Italian fashion mm. with the shape of the pasta. And so macaroni became associated with like a kind of dandy. Um, Those Italian type. dandies. I love that. Yeah. I want to be known as a macaroni. <laughs> and so they called it macaroni. That's delightful. <laughs> yeah, honestly. I had no idea that there was an actual tie to macaroni. I thought it was some language relic. Right. I That's fantastic. No, it's amazing because you don't think of macaroni and, like, English culture, <laughs> you know, going back hundreds and hundreds of years. But it, it very much was, um, which I, I think is just really bizarre and fascinating. Yeah, that's so great because it, it's not like you imagine people in the like medieval period like eating comfort food. <laughs> like yeah. everything is like pheasants <laughs> or right. something in right. my head. <laughs> no, and I mean, and that's actually that's a very interesting point too because there is like a slightly older version of pasta recipe that came out roughly around the same time, and that was from Italy. Um, And that was a recipe from uh, Liber di Cochinas, which I'm sorry, I'm butchering the pronunciation on that. Um, But it was essentially a recipe for lasagna. Um, And so it wasn't, instead of cutting the pieces of pasta into macaroni, uh, you would just have it laid out flat Mm -hmm. and layered with butter and cheese and spices. And that was the idea. Getting back to your point about the fat and everything, they would cook all of that, um, all of that wonderful pasta. It must be cooked in capon or other fat meat broth, mm. and so that was what they required. Uh, it was definitely part of it, more so than I think it is today. <laughs> Put some lard on it. Always, <laughs> always, the answer. always. All right, snack break, and then we'll be back. 
Okay, pals, you love the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week podcast, and now you can love it as a Facebook group. Share your strangest facts and read all about the offbeat and outlandish findings of other science lovers. We'll also be publishing some of the bonus info and ramblings that didn't make it into the final cut of the podcast. Just search for The Weirdest Thing on Facebook. Today on The Weirdest Thing Facebook group, I saw someone tell someone else that their fact was wrong, but then come back and apologize and say they had actually been drunk and probably the fact was right. So Neil, I would just like to applaud you for that mea culpa. It was uh, very big of you. And I hope you enjoy more fun times on The Weirdest Thing Facebook group. I am about to talk about sex magic. We won't get into anything too explicit, but if you haven't had the sex magic talk with your children, uh, <laughs> it's happening now. <laughs> so, buckle up. So this story starts with a man named Jack Parsons, uh, who's one of the kind of founders of modern rocketry, mm-hmm. but whose name does not get thrown around as much as other folks. There is a new show about him, I think, on CBS Uh, Full disclosure, I have not watched it yet, so I am uh, unbiased and uncolored by whatever good or bad things they have done to his story on this show. Uh, But I do appreciate TV shows about scientists being weird, so I will check it out. It's kind of our brand. Yeah. (laughs) So Jack Parsons, I first heard about him on this, this, like, docudrama podcast, really, like, this fictional podcast called Tannis, and... Uh, because it's supposed to be real life, they weave in a lot of uh, real history. And so they talked about Jack Parsons a lot, but I assumed it was really embellished. And then I found out it wasn't, like, at all. (laughs) And I was a a little shocked. Uh, So when I found out they were making a show about our buddy Jack, I was like, well, I better read up on him now. So I, like, know what's what before I get even more confused about what in his fantastic sex magic story is uh, true versus false. So Jack Parsons uh, was really into rocketry. He was uh, testing early rocket motors at Caltech's Guggenheim Aeronautical Lab uh, in like the 30s. And um, it was so dangerous at that time to be working with uh, those kinds of uh, propellants that he, uh, he and his friends were called the Suicide Squad. So they were just yes. wow. a bunch of rowdy American boys uh, blowing up some rockets. <laughs> uh, really like what you think of when you think of the history of rocketry. This was like um, right around when the government first started paying people to actually investigate rocket propulsion uh, and jet-assisted takeoff. And they had been working at Caltech, but then they got some... Uh, money and they started a company called Aerojet and then got a $3 million grant from the U.S. government and it became the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which, uh, as most people know, is now part of NASA. In fact, so it was founded in 1943 and by 1958, JPL was integrated into the brand new National Aeronautics and Space Administration. It really was like the dawn of the space age and he did some of the most important work on like solid rocket fuel and was by all accounts a real genius when it came to explosives. He served as an expert witness in like trials involving explosives. That's like oh. a great tombstone. A <laughs> genius when it came to explosives. <laughs> um, but perhaps unfortunately for Jack Parsons, rocketry wasn't his only flight of fancy. He was also involved in famed occultist Alistair Crowley's Ordo Templi Orientis. 
uh, and an active member of the uh, Thelemite Church, which was Aleister Crowley's church. Uh, which is eventually is why JPL like forced him to essentially sell his stock and leave. And a lot of people argue that NASA has kind of written Jack Parsons out of its history. I mean, mm-hmm. NASA, I've seen them respond a few times, be like, our official comment is he's still in the history books. <laughs> but I think it's widely believed that his role has been sort of minimized or that just like people don't bring his name up much because he was kind of an embarrassment. And certainly at the time, he was an embarrassment to the other people who founded JPL. They did not want him around anymore, even though, again, by all accounts, very brilliant man. So what was going on with Aleister Crawley? I'm glad you asked. I I need to know. (laughs) They were doing a lot of magic with a K, which I always assumed that was like people's way of making fun of people who did magic. But it was actually Aleister Crowley preferred that spelling because it uh, distinguished the occult from parlor tricks, from illusions. (laughs) A very important (laughs) difference. So they had this philosophy that boiled down to do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, which basically just resulted in uh, Jack Parsons hosting a lot of orgies at his mansion in Pasadena. (laughs) But they did like, they had a lot of heavy ceremony. They were doing rituals all the time, like really complicated rituals. That was kind of their whole thing. Uh, Most of the rituals involved sex. They were very much about like free love. He actually, um, his last wife, uh, Marjorie Cameron, uh, he believed he had conjured her up in a sex ritual. He had been trying to conjure um, an elemental. He basically wanted like the personification of some kind of satanic goddess mm-hmm. to be his perfect wife. And he had done this ritual a few times, I believe. And I, Eleanor I looks a little so much. This is oh so, my god, this is so weird and gross. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor's expression is just um, Jack Parsons was, you know, the disgust. kind of self-proclaimed feminist who calls women goddesses, you know. Demonic goddesses. Yes. That are his creation. Not his creation. Okay. Just his, sum- his summoning. He had, he had asked that she show up and she did. That's what he believed. Beautiful. So <laughs> she better than Tinder. So uh, apparently after one of these rituals, um, Marjorie Cameron, who had this like brilliant red hair and was this very like handsome and um, powerful woman came into his house like uninvited. I mean, I think she was there with friends. I mean, they were basically having orgies in Pasadena. So I think a lot of... Who wasn't invited. I don't think it was that (laughs) unusual that she showed up without being invited. (laughs) But he was like, here she is, my elemental. And um, they were all very in love and did some really weird stuff together and uh, seemed to have been pretty happy. The thing that's really interesting to me about Jack Parsons, uh, you know, other than kind of the subtle tragedy of his life, which is that um, the fact that he was involved in the occult and was kind of linked to Marxism, though loosely he may have, like, subscribed to a couple of newspapers that were considered um, you know, socialist in nature at mm-hmm. some point in his life. So when the Cold War started and um, McCarthy started targeting Uh, lots of government workers and government-adjacent workers who they thought were enemies of the state. Uh, He came under a lot of scrutiny because he was an unusual dude and a lot of other unusual people at the time who did not care about um, pretending to fit the mainstream ideal got in a lot of trouble with the government as well. Um, He briefly worked for Howard Hughes uh, but was accused of spying and so then uh, was blacklisted again. And he ended up working in special effects and 
um, died concocting stunt explosives uh, at the age of 37. Died as he lived. Yeah. Wow. Wait, actually Doing, died? He did. That's yeah. like in extremely a, oh. young and terrible. And yeah. No, so it's really sad and sad to me that, you know, his downfall was really that he was like, I'm just living my life doing sex magic and also making rockets. And at the time, this country was really not friendly to people who um, did not fit the picture of the, the you know, red-blooded American. And um, he also believed that magic and quantum physics were intertwined. Like, to him, his spiritual practices did not contradict his scientific endeavors at all. They were one and the same. Um, he thought that there must be something kind of controlling the unknown corners of the universe and that he could maybe access that with the right kinds of rituals. That's like not an uncommon thing in the history of science. Uh, you know, you see uh, Thomas Edison mm -hmm. in 1920, he announced that he was trying to design a phone to communicate with spirits. Um, and in 2015, a French journalist actually found a rare version of Edison's diary dedicated to his theory of the spirit world. And until then, a lot of people had thought the spirit phone in 1920 had been a prank, but it probably wasn't. And it, there's a lot of evidence that Edison kind of thought that the conservation of matter m meant there must be some kind of immortal soul. Like he thought there must be some like particle that made you you that didn't go away. So to him, it was like really logical to think that there must be something that you could figure out how to access. It was kind of this era when anything seemed plausible because all these things that seemed impossible were happening. So people, including some of them, you know, brilliant working scientists were like, well, maybe this is when we figure out how to commune with the dead. Nikola Tesla also loved seances, though he also said he had loved a pigeon as a man loves a woman, which is my favorite Nikola Tesla fact. Oh, or so, just fact. Yeah, like, one of my favorite facts. Uh, so Tesla was like, you know, maybe a little more unbalanced, but like at the time, basically all scientists working on electricity had like weird, weird ideas for what electricity might be able to do because it was practically magic to them. And you go back to Isaac Newton, he was studying so much alchemy. He was still looking for the philosopher's stone to turn base metals into gold because chemistry at that point was almost indistinguishable from alchemy. So he was like, great, we're starting to figure out how all this alchemy actually works. He didn't, he wasn't like, oh, great, we moved on from alchemy to chemistry. So... Jack Parsons, in my mind, you know, clearly had a lot going on in his noggin. Um, but I think he is part of this long tradition of scientists getting so close to something that seems so implausible and so unknown that it does take on a really spiritual bent for them. And I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. So that's my sex magic story. It was wonderful. It was Thanks. a very good sex magic story. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. It's Pride Month. Celebrate with our limited edition Science Pride t-shirts featuring a rainbow popular science logo. All profits go to Out in STEM, an organization that empowers the LGBTQ community in science, tech, engineering, and math. Get yours now at popsci.threadless.com and share on social media with hashtag SciPride. That's S-C-I Pride. So we're back for one more fact from Eleanor. Um, alrighty. 
So as I said earlier, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, contagious writer's block. Oh. Um, I'm so sorry. I We definitely need to cast some magic spells to protect us, but Please. I've been super fascinated with this fact since I learned about it, and, and going deeper has only revealed exciting new dimensions. So... Uh, there was a New Yorker writer named Joseph Mitchell, and he had writer's block from 1964 until his death in 1996. Oh, no. Even weirder, oh, no. he was never fired from the New Yorker <laughs> and went to work every day. He overlapped with David Remnick, the current editor of the New Yorker, which I find bizarre that like this could continue into the, the modern regime. Um, I'm so I'm just amazed. In the 1940s, uh, Mitchell, he started hanging out with this guy named Joe Gould, who uh, was, his Wikipedia page calls him an American eccentric, which is an amazing title. Um, but this guy, he lived in, in Greenwich Village, and um, he was, like, really sort of, like, famous in this literary set because they thought that he was just this, like, sort of lost genius. And if they could just persuade enough people, his friends were convinced that, you know, he would be um, recognized for his um, talent. That sounds like any good group of friends for anyone. Yes, but fair. support Go your on. friends. Um, so Joe Gould, he said that he was writing this sort of exhaustive oral history um, about Greenwich Village, but also just sort of more widely about the era. Um, and he was working on it for decades. Mm-hmm. And so people sort of kind of got interested and are like, what's up with this Joe Gould guy? And his friends, again, were like, he's a genius. And other people were not so sure. <laughs> so um, in 1942, Mitchell um, profiled Joe for the magazine. Um, and, you know, he wrote this sort of uh, profile of him that's really highly regarded. But it turned out that he had been keeping a secret for Joe um, that he had been sort of piecing together in the years that he spent reporting this mm-hmm. magazine story. It seems that um, Joe Gould had um, something called hypergraphia, which is a sort of um, uh, kind of like disordered mental pattern that manifests as uh, just writing obsessively Mm. um, and, you know, not necessarily new things, sort of like the Bart Simpson, like I will not do again, right? right? right. Doing that kind of thing over and over or letters or swirls and doing it all over, you know, um, different surfaces, like not just on a piece of paper, but on walls. But at the same time, also had writer's block. So while people thought that he was writing this exhaustive oral history, it turned out that he was actually just sort of writing the same few ideas over and over and over again. And so when he died in 1957, Joseph Mitchell was like, I can finally tell Joe Gould's secret, which Mm -hmm. is the title of this book. Unfortunately, it's the last thing Joseph Mitchell writes. Um, he, Wait, sorry, did he successfully write the book? He or successfully just the title wrote of the, the book. book. Okay. He successfully okay. wrote, good to clarification. Okay. He successfully wrote the book, and it was a huge hit. People loved it. They thought it was great. And so this is where the sort of the mystery starts. Um, so in 1964, the book is published. It's also the, the, the last year that he writes anything. Um, but for the next 30 years, he keeps showing up at The New Yorker. And so, uh, for example, uh, Roger Engel, who was another New Yorker writer, um, sort of like describes the, the daily business that Mitchell went about. Each morning, he stepped out of the elevator with a preoccupied air, nodded wordlessly if you were just coming down the hall, and closed himself in his office. He emerged at lunchtime, always wearing his natty brown fedora, in summer a straw one, and a tan raincoat. An hour and a half later, he reversed the process, again closing the door. Not much typing was heard from within, and people who called on Joe reported that his desktop was empty of everything but paper and pencils. When the end of the day came, he went home. Sometimes in the evening elevator, I heard him emit a small sigh, but he never complained, never explained. 
So that goes on day in and day out wow. for decades. And then in 2013, um, someone decides to sort of profile Joseph Mitchell um, in a book, um, a book about his life. And he sort of like digs into like what the heck was happening. So it turns out that during that time, Joseph Mitchell was writing. He just hated everything he wrote and never shared it with anyone. Um, and the New Yorker editors were sort of trusting that something would eventually happen because in the most productive period of his life, he was writing an article every five years. For reference, I think Mary Beth writes an article every day, just about. <laughs> so <laughs> something to keep in mind. Oh, my God. So, you know, they were like, he's like David Remnick even, who, who thought, met him at the end of his life, at, of the end of Mitchell's life, was like, you know, he was an artist. I'm a journalist. He was an artist. So people gave him a lot of space and were like convinced that something would eventually emerge from this office where he went oh, and wow. sat every day. But nothing did. Um, but in 2013, The New Yorker posthumously published um, an essay that he had been working on. He'd been saying that he was going to write, like, a memoir of his life. Um, and so they published this uh, essay called Street Life. And I read it, um, and it's a, a pretty winding sort of uh, menagerie of ideas that sort of leaves on a cliff uh, cliffhanger, um, which is never fulfilled. Um, it's sort of a mess. And I think, you know, revealingly, he uses the word haunted four times because um, that was clearly mm, sort of his mental yeah. state. What's fascinating um, about uh, all of this, too, is that when he he um, apparently told a Washington Post reporter in an interview, um, you pick someone so close that, in fact, you are writing about yourself. Joe Gould had to leave home because he didn't fit in in the same way I had to leave home because I didn't fit in. Talking to Joe Gould all those years, he became me in a way, if you see what I mean, which I think really says huh. it all about what was going on in his mind. The 1970s and 80s, apparently, though, no one ever told Joseph Mitchell about this or tried to help him. Um, psychologists started really avidly studying writer's block, which I feel like is a really strange preoccupation given uh, that there are a lot of things to focus on in psychology. Many. But not as many that preoccupy employed white men. Exactly. Exactly. It's all a very <laughs> privileged conversation, which is why I was so skeptical, because like, on some level, who really has the privilege to not do their job for that long? Mm. This one man. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the research came to the conclusion that there are four different flavors of writer's block, if you will. Um, so one is sort of the anxious person. And this is someone who is so self-critical mm -hmm. um, that they are unable to um, produce because they're just, you know, I mean, I think we've all been there, right? You're just yeah. looking at this sentence and you're like, this sentence sucks and I suck. And then if yeah. you give in to that, you can just never show anyone anything ever again and you can have writer's block for the rest of your life. And then there's uh, the person who is sort of like interpersonally angry, which I found to be a fascinating mm. subcategory. So this is the person who um, essentially is jealous. Like, they don't want to be compared to anybody. Um, they, they want to be better than everybody, but to the point that they can't actually do anything. Mm. And that's its own whole form of writer's block, wow. according wow. to these researchers. Um, then there is the uh, sort of apathetic person. Extreme mood. Um, <laughs> this, is the, this is the person who, uh, according to researchers, um, has the most sort of like authentic form of writer's block in terms of just not feeling like they can do it, just not even can't trying. Can't Yeah, yeah, where you're just mm. like, this isn't worth it. Um, and then finally, there is the negative or hostile um, person. And this writer's block is driven by um, just a, an insatiable need for attention. Um, so maybe you're not writing for the right reasons in the first place. 
Um, and so based off of these sort of like uh, types of, of writer's block, researchers then wanted to try some interventions and mm -hmm. like see, could you relieve this pressure? Could you sort of like help these people out? Um, and what they found was that exercises in what they call like directed mental imagery were actually pretty effective um, for uh, people in sort of all groups, um, though uh, some, some more than others. Um, and so the idea here is like dream journaling, mm -hmm. um, like doing exercises mm -hmm. where you're not trying to produce for anybody else and you're not even necessarily trying to do things well, like something sort of fantastical um, uh, and a little bit removed from the actual work you're doing has been found to relieve writer's block pretty effectively. As far as the idea of contagious writer's block, um, I was unable to really find anything about that in the literature, which I feel like makes sense because it's probably not super yeah. legit. But I do think that it speaks to this thing that comes up on the weirdest thing a lot, which is this idea of just like the power of sort of like persuasion. Like, mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting reading through like Joseph Mitchell's reflections on his own problems that while he never really ties it to Joe Gould in the book he was writing, he also is like, we became very close and I became haunted by this entire experience. And, wow. and that cripples him. Wow. Yeah, brains are terrifying. Yes. It speaks a little bit to the notion of genius, too, like the problematic notion mm -hmm. of genius. Mm -hmm. On some level, that's structurally. A genius is someone who is allowed to spend 30 years not doing anything, mm -hmm. but being paid, collecting a paycheck. That's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not being sort of, like, pressured because, like, this is a part of their process. I mm -hmm. think that pressure is good for producing things. It right. is. Well, like, you know, and it, the question is, like, who is the genius? Someone who puts out really good work consistently even when it's like not coming from the deepest depths of their soul but like they're good at creating mm -hmm. work that needs to be created mm -hmm. or someone who like sits quietly for 10 years and then is like my new single is dropping <laughs> <laughs> and in science too we have this idea of the kind of like the great scientist who just like sits there coming up with with groundbreaking ideas, even if it takes, you know, years for, for one to pop out. And, like, that's not how any science works. Scientists have a lot of bad ideas. They have, like, mostly, you know, mediocre, somewhat helpful ideas. And then some of them sometimes have something that, like, goes on to change the course of human history. And that's great, obviously. But it's because they put the work in. It's not because they were, like, Eureka. Well, it's because... <laughs> Von it's Bingen. <laughs> It's because they're they're constantly working. I mean, I had a fascinating conversation with a scientist recently who she'd taken data from a very long time ago and the results didn't make sense and they didn't make sense. And it ended up being 10 years later that she was at another conference where mm. she saw, oh, maybe this is what I'm looking for. And when I was talking with her, she was about to like finally write up the results that she'd been initially looking at because she'd finally answered this question. And it's like, you can have these things that take long amounts of time, but you're not going to get to that amazing moment if you're just sitting in your office by yourself with paper. You get it when you're out and you're talking with others mm -hmm. and you're learning from others and you're continuing to do that work. Um, and that's, that's so, I think, key is like... Definitely. And yeah, I totally think that that speaks to the importance of collaboration, mm -hmm. which is being increasingly recognized in science, but also is so relevant to like Joseph Mitchell's case. Like he did write things, but instead of entrusting someone to help him make those better yeah. and shape them, he just like 
I mean, basically set them on fire. Not literally, because we have them. They're, he, like, stowed them away, you know? <laughs> but it's just, like, just hand that over to your editor or just, like, share your data with a colleague, yeah. you know? Like, you need more um, perspectives and to sometimes just get out of your own head to, to do good work. Yeah, absolutely. So what do we think the weirdest thing we learned this week was, you guys? I learned so much about macaroni <laughs> and Italian dandies <laughs> that I'm going to give it to Mary Beth for my vote. Oh, exciting. I mean, I think I'm still like, I think I'm going to be haunted by the story of <laughs> the, like, of the writer's block. So I'm, I'm, I'm voting Eleanor. This, this is week. really bad because I'm like sex magic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it our first tie? Is that an It's option? our first tie. Is this like soccer? I make the rules and I say it's a tie. So it's a tie. We'll actually be back in two weeks. Try not to miss us too much, weirdos, and have a great 4th of July. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can buy our merch, including our limited edition SciPride t-shirts and the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week tote bags at popsci.threadless.com. Our theme music was produced by Billy Cadden. Our editor is Jason Letterman. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.